So I want you all to imagine that as you came in this morning, you were given a blank sheet of paper and you had your choice of crayons or pens or, or paints, something to create a picture with. And I asked everybody at home live streaming to find similar supplies at home and, and get ready. And, and now I'm going to ask you to uh, imagine creating a picture of something specific. And given that our phrase from the Apostles' Creed this morning is, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, I'm going to ask you to make a picture of what comes to mind when you think of Judgment Day. You don't need to answer aloud, but what would be in your picture of Judgment Day? Who would be in it? What colors might dominate your picture? For me, when I was thinking about this earlier in the week, I just kept seeing a pen and ink sketch of a massive throne, massive throne, in a gigantic palace of stone, probably marble, and seated on that throne is this large image of a human being with a massive book in his lap. And yes, it was a he that I kept picturing in my image. Here's what frustrates me most about the image that comes to mind is that the person, the he I saw on the throne, was not Jesus. Rather, it was the often fearful image of God the Father, the white father, an old white guy with flowing white hair, flowing white beard, flowing white garment. That's why it was probably a pen and ink drawing because there's no color in this picture. But this image frustrates me predominantly because this is not whom we believe will be the judge on Judgment Day. Every week we proclaim what we believe, that Jesus will come to judge all. From thence he, meaning Jesus, we're still in the section on Jesus, Jesus shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And even after I had been studying this phrase all week, that image that came to mind as I was even writing the sermon was the false one. Old white guy God sitting on a throne in a marble palace making judgments. And I imagine that if I had you all turn in your papers as you left this morning, that I would not be the only one whose image of judgment day differed from the scriptural clues that we are given. Similar to when we were talking about hell and our images of hell, similar to hell, the images, most of the images that we have of Judgment Day come from popular images that often have little or nothing even to do with scripture. Examples uh, would be uh, Michelangelo's fresco on the Sistine Chapel. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, with the, the spider dangling over the flames of hell by one thin thread that can be clipped at any moment, sending us to our doom. Or if you Google it, probably the first 
image that you will get is Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2, Judgment Day. All of those images are false. And they lead to misunderstandings of this important biblical event. Rather than being an event we ought to fear, Judgment Day is an event that we ought to hope for. Rather than it being an event full of wrath, Judgment Day will be an event that sets everything at peace. The Apostles' Creed reminds us, as disciples of Christ, that Judgment Day is something we look forward to because the judge is Jesus. Even our First Testament text sets a tone that the Day of Judgment is to be anticipated as joyful. Let the sea resound in everything in it, the world and all who live in it. The rivers clap their hands, the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. This is something to be encountered with joy. This is especially true for those who have been treated unjustly in this life. The main purpose for this event is finally and thoroughly to make life on earth as it is in heaven. And over and over again in the scriptures, we hear that the way to do that, the way that God judges whether the nations are living that way, is how they care for the poor, the fatherless, the widows. Because in the society of biblical times, those were the people without resources or legal standing. God's judgment is about setting things right. For the proud and the powerful, this will mean a humbling. For the humble and the powerless, this will mean salvation. Again, we hear this in our Hebrew First Testament passage. Sing to the Lord for the Lord, uh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness, his justice to the nations. In this and so many other scriptures, salvation and justice go together. Judgment comes to bring salvation. They go hand in hand. Even creation we hear, will be set right by this event. That's why the psalmist encourages even the sea and the rivers and the mountains to rejoice. We can be especially assured of this, the goodness of this event because it is Jesus who is the judge. In our gospel passage, uh, we hear what is the ultimate purpose of Jesus coming to earth both the first time originally and the second time. God so loved the world that God gave their one and only Son that whomever believes in him shall not perish, shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send their Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came not to condemn, but save, 
and that will be the same purpose when he comes again. Remember, when Jesus comes to judge, he will be coming from the presence of God the Father, God the Mother, with God's authority. He sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge. And we've just heard that God's stance toward us is merciful, saving love. God so loved the world that God gave their only son in order that human beings might be saved. Essentially, Jesus will come to judge how we have responded to him in our lives. In one of the most significant teachings on Judgment Day, Jesus tells, <clears throat> tells a story about what will happen on that day. This is from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Many of you will recognize this right, right away. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit, he will sit the Son of Man, not the big white guy, uh, old man, but the, the Son of Man, Jesus, will sit on his throne in the heavenly glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will, come, will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or when did we see you a stranger, invite you in, or needing clothes? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. And he says the opposite to the others. You didn't do those things. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. Judgment Day has already begun. Every time we are confronted with someone who is hungry or thirsty, someone who is an exile or an immigrant, someone without basic resources for life, someone sick or in jail, we are judged by how we respond or what we don't do, what we do or what we don't do for them. C.E.B. Cranfield, a former professor of, at the University of Dunham, puts it this way. The sheep and goats passage as a whole is designed to bring home the truth that no one, 
when giving account of his or her life, will be meeting his or her judge for the first time. Every one of us has been meeting our judge throughout the course of his or her life, in the flesh and blood of fellow human beings, in their need and distress. The judgment depicted in Matthew 25 is a judgment according to works, but not in any legalistic sense. The righteous of this passage have not deserved their acceptance on the ground of what they have done, but their works are an indication, a revelation of the reality of their faith. Likewise, the failure of the others to show compassion has shown conclusively that if they have professed any faith in Christ, it has only been counterfeit. I will say that that part does still sound kind of scary for those who have claimed to be Christian but have not acted with compassion for those in need. The scriptures proclaim that that hypocrisy will be revealed and justice will be served. But it's not they alone whose lack of compassion will be revealed. The same is true for me and for you. None of us do right every single time we are given an opportunity to do right or wrong throughout the whole course of our lives. Sometimes we aren't even sure what the right thing to do is. On Judgment Day, all will be revealed for every one of us, and all will be judged in the light of Jesus. All of us will see what we have done that reveals love of God and love for others and what we have done that reveals selfishness and cruelty. But this is still good news and to be hoped for. Those of us who follow Jesus want to be the best version of ourselves that we can be. We want the same for other human beings. We want the same for this planet. But try as we may, we can't make ourselves perfect, let alone anyone else or the planet. All that obstructs our ability to, to be what God intends us to be must be revealed and destroyed. And this is what Jesus, this is what will take place on Judgment Day. And the one who will set everything right is Jesus, the one who sacrificed everything, even his life, in order that we in the world would become the best versions of ourselves. He is the one who will determine for our lives and for the world what is of God and worthy of saving and what is not and needs to be refined away like dross from gold. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful illustration of what the experience will be like on Judgment Day in his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. I first heard this uh, used as such an illustration from Earl Palmer at University Presbyterian Church years ago. In this story, one of the characters is named Eustace Clarence Scrub. And as the narrator adds, he almost deserved the name. 
This is the type of kid Eustace was. He liked animals, especially beetles, if they were dead and pinned on a card. He liked books if they were books of information and had pictures of grain elevators or of fat foreign children doing exercises in model schools. Eustace Clarence disliked his cousins, the four Pevensies, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. But he was quite glad when he heard that Edmund and Lucy were coming to stay, for deep down inside he liked bossing and bullying. And though he was a puny little person who couldn't have stood up even to Lucy in a fight, he knew that there are dozens of ways to give people a bad time if you are in your own home and they are only visitors. Well, at one point in the story, Eustace realizes that he has turned into a dragon. In a sense, his greedy, selfish, uh, dragony self has transformed into a reality. Um, the first feeling he had when he realizes this was one of relief. There was nothing to be afraid of anymore. He was a terror himself now and nothing in the world but a knight. And not all those would dare to attack him. He could even get even with Caspian and Edmund now. But the moment he thought this, he realized that he didn't want to. He wanted to be friends. He wanted to go back among humans and talk and laugh and share things. He realized that he was a monster cut off from the whole human race. He began to see the other, that the others had not really been fiends at all. He began to wonder if he himself had been such a nice person as he had always supposed. Of course, he hadn't been. Like, he, like us, he wants to be the best version of himself that he can be, but he doesn't know how. Later in the story, he explains to one of his cousins how it was that he was freed from this dragony self of his. I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly towards me. It came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand that. But it wasn't, or excuse me, uh, but it came closer and looked straight into my eyes. And I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. They go up a mountain and into this garden, and in the middle of it, there was a well. I knew it was well a well because you could see the water bubbling out from the bottom of it. But it was a lot bigger than most wells, like a, a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was clear as anything. And I thought, oh, if I could just get in and bathe, it would ease the pain. But the lion told me I must undress first. And I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sorts of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, I thought. That's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began to come off all over the place. Then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started coming off here and there, peeling off beautifully. 
as if I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But then he notices, ah, it's there again. So he tears it off again. And he thinks, okay, yeah, there's just another layer in there. Now I'm good. And so he goes down again and again. There's another layer. I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? So I scratched away. uh, But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. The lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when I began, when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling that stuff peel off. Well, he peeled that beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and as soft as a peeled switch, smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for it was very tender underneath, now that I'd no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as, I, as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. Centuries even before C.S. Lewis wrote that scene, One of the Christian leaders from the East, Gregory of Nyssa, understood that this is what Jesus would do for all of us. He wrote, The divine judgment does not primarily bring punishment on sinners. It operates only by separating good from evil and pulling the soul toward communion in blessedness. It is the tearing apart of what has grown together which brings pain to the one who is being pulled. But the result is that our best selves, our best world, will be released and realized. We are living in a time in which those who are in power do everything they can to keep the truth of their own corruption and failings hidden. They fear judgment that will lessen their power and their wealth. They fear losing control because they fear retribution. And I think that much of the fear that is associated with Judgment Day in the United States has been perpetrated by white evangelical preachers who have aligned themselves with corrupt racist systems that they know are unjust and they're afraid of being revealed. But there is no salvation without judgment. 
as followers of Christ, we don't fear judgment because the one who judges is Jesus, and his judgment saves. He comes from God the Father, God the Mother, with love for the whole world. He comes to set everyone and everything right. So we anticipate Judgment Day with thanksgiving, rather than wish the truth to stay hidden, we look forward to the day when it will be revealed. As it said at the end of this revelation of John, as Jesus announced, behold, I'm coming through, coming soon, and my reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what they have done. The Alpha, I am the Alpha Omega, first, last, beginning, and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they might have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. The spirit and the bride say, come, because this is a joyful event. And let those who hear, those of us hear, say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let them come. And whoever wishes, let them take the free gift of the water of life. Thanks be to God.